Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have a very special guest with me here in the studio who's going to be giving a lecture for us on Finkenwald today. That's an annual remembrance of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his community and how they study theology and live together. We remember it every year and we bring in a special guest. And this year it's Dr. Han Luen Konser Kamlein. She is a theologian who teaches at Western Theological Seminary where her husband David also teaches. I met her a couple of years ago. We've been together at a few different conferences and I just wanted to introduce her to the Beeson community and to you, our podcast listeners. So well, Welcome, Han Luen, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, I want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you became a theologian. Sure. I'm very grateful to a number of teachers I had who encouraged me along in this path. My family was certainly always encouraging me as well, and this was something I gradually discerned over time, starting at Wheaton College. I had a professor, Mark Husbands, who encouraged me to think about further academic study of theology, and then I uh, lived in China for a year. I'm half Chinese, so this was an opportunity to connect with my roots. Where were you in China? In a city called Yantai, near near Qingdao, which is a little yeah. better known yeah. on the coast of the Yellow Sea. And so from there, from Wheaton, you went on to do seminary work? Yes. Was, was that at Princeton? That's right. Yep. Yep. I think that's where I first met you, maybe, many years ago when I was speaking there for something. Yes, I think that's right. And I think you gave me a copy of one of your books at the oh, time. Oh, my goodness. Yes, <laughs> and we discussed your friendship with my grandfather. Yeah. I'm glad you brought him up because I would lo- love for you to say a little bit more about who your grandfather was and what he meant to you in your own formation. Well, my grandfather, I think, was forming me already, starting from the cradle, basically. He's, he sent two books a month to me, um, beginning from before I remember, so wow. starting with children's books. Yeah. Uh, but he very carefully selected what he was going to give to me, and I I read what he sent my way. Hmm. And then he would call once a week, and we'd talk on Sundays, and often we'd talk about the books that he had sent and um, ideas in, in those and as well as what was going on in my life. His name was Kenneth Concert. That's your grandfather. Mm -hmm. And for our podcast listeners who may not know, he's one of the great evangelical statesmen of our time, I think. I met him first when we were both senior editors at Christianity Today. But he also served as the dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and many other offices and important. He was a visionary leader, your grandfather. But to think... He loved you and cared for you and wanted to see you grow and develop and be nurtured in the things of God, even from the time you were a little girl. Mm-hmm. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. And it, if you knew Ken Concert, it's, it, it's, it's like him to be that way. So I just think that's a wonderful story. Now, we, we got you to Princeton. Yes. Are you a Presbyterian? Um, I'm actually a part of the Reformed Church in America. So theologically reformed though not part of the PCUSA. Tell us what uh, the Reformed Church in America is. Yeah, um, it is a Dutch Reformed denomination. 
Um, its close cousin is the Christian Reformed Church. Um, yeah, and I, I joined the denomination when I started at Western Theological Seminary, which is a school of the Reformed Church in America denomination. And that's where you're teaching. So from Princeton to Western, you took a little detour through Notre Dame. That's right. Say a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, my husband David and I were both pursuing our callings together, and um, we first after seminary spent a year in Tubingen mm-hmm. studying there on fellowships, and we were so grateful that it worked out for both of us to be able to pursue doctoral work at Notre Dame. We can still hardly believe that that worked out, and we're so grateful. Um, So he studied with Mark Knoll in the history department, and I studied with Brian Daly in the theology department. And we have a faculty member here at Beeson Divinity School uh, who also studied with Brian Daly, Dr. Carl Beckwith, Mm -hmm. who, like you, is an Augustine patristic scholar. So you, you come with a good pedigree, but you've taken that and developed it in your own unique way. Somebody told me you describe yourself as Elizabethan. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, I think a good way of getting to the heart of what I mean by that is to think about the Eisenheim Altars piece, Mm -hmm. which was a favorite um, piece of artwork of Karl Barth. And one panel of the Eisenheim Altars piece depicts John the Baptist pointing to Christ with a very long finger. Mm. And when I think about what Christian ministry is... I think that that image is a great illustration. Um, Christian ministers are about pointing people to Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf and his invitation to all of us to join in on God's redemptive work in the world. And what we may not often think about is the role of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, Mm. in encouraging his calling and helping to form him into the minister that he was. Mm. So I think of my vocation as, like Elizabeth's, that of preparing Christian ministers who in turn prepare the way for Jesus Christ and point to him and his work. Uh, We didn't talk about it when we were introducing your family, David, but you all are the parents of two children, right? Mm -hmm. What are their names? Well, my older son, Kenneth is three years old, and he's named after my grandfather. Ken Conser, yeah. That's right, yep. And my younger son is named Paul, and he's a year and a half. That's wonderful. Well, let's get to what you really did in your dissertation research and in your scholarly work, particularly at Notre Dame, working with Brian Daly. You began to focus on Augustine. Why Augustine? Uh, (laughs) When I first started out um, writing my dissertation and would tell people that I was working on Augustine, they'd often say, oh, and look on me with great pity, um, because I think Augustine is one of the more challenging figures to write on simply because he wrote so much and because so much has been written about him. But one of my theology professors had this saying that um, I like to repeat as well, which is, I'd rather be tired than bored. (laughs) I am never bored of Augustine. I find him to be endlessly fascinating um, in terms of his importance for uh, the whole Christian tradition and even Western culture at 
at large. I think that makes him existentially fascinating because of how he's shaped who we are and the things we assume. And I think it's fascinating to study how his thinking developed and changed over time, Mm. something that he left us little breadcrumbs along the path to to discover. He uh, equipped us to trace how his mind changed over time, and that's really interesting. And I love his passion combined Mm. with Mm. his mind. Now, he lived at an interesting time, didn't he? At the end of antiquity and the beginning of what we call the Middle Ages, the medieval period, he kind of opens up into a new era in some ways uh, recapitulates what had gone before him in a powerful way, especially for Christians in the West. I mean, the reception of Augustine in the East is a little different kind of story, uh, though there are great Augustine followers there, too. But especially in the West, I think, for both Roman Catholic and Protestant traditions, he's kind of the fulcrum from which we mm-hmm. start. So I can see why he would be an attractive figure, and he's a, he's a great person to read. Of course, we all think of the confessions. Uh, if I'm stranded on a desert island, I want the Bible, King James Version, please, uh-huh. and Augustine's Confessions. And there are many translations of that. But, of course, his works are so much vaster than just the Confessions. Uh, and um, you, in, in particular, were interested in his work on the will And one of your uh, first books from Oxford University Press is Augustine on the Will, a Theological Account. Now, it's really interesting to me that you would choose that uh, because the first thing I ever read by Augustine as an undergraduate was his early treatise, De Libero Arbitrio, on the free will or on free choice, as it's sometimes translated. And he that the will was a was an issue for him personally. You can see that in the, in the confessions, but also it's it's a matter that grew and developed in his own mind in significant ways. Why the will? It was very interesting to me to read some of the recent literature on the will in Augustine that basically says that Augustine repeats in almost a watered-down way what some philosophers had already said about the will, particularly the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just seemed to me to totally miss the point. Um, but I also wasn't able to find an account of how his understanding of the will developed over time and how its character was distinctively theological. Mm-hmm. And so mainly because an earlier research paper I had done had touched on this, and I looked for literature about it. I sort of stumbled into this topic. Well, if you, this is an unfair question, I'll tell you up front. But if you had to summarize what it is you discovered in pursuing Augustine on the will, what would it be? I would say that for Augustine, the will is irreducibly theological. That is, his account of what the human will is only makes sense in relation to God and the story of God's relationship with humankind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, I remember that early treatise on Augustine on the free will. It, it was a very positive, almost robust interpretation of the will where, where human beings had a great deal of freedom to move upward toward God or downward toward the self. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, something happens in Augustine's thinking that qualifies that interpretation of the will. Am I wrong? 
No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, one of the things I do in my book is describe how there were many successive stages in Augustine's thinking about the will. Um, but something I also show is that the previous stages aren't entirely left behind, mm-hmm. that there's still a place for this understanding of the will that we see in De Libero Arbitrio, mm-hmm. but it's reframed or recontextualized mm-hmm. because Augustine later comes to think that this highly positive account of the will as powerful and able to choose between good and evil is true in a certain context, that is, in the context of how the will was created to function. Mm -hmm. But that no longer describes the will in its fallen state. So something happened in what we call the fall, capital F, that gives us a different uh, uh, presentment of the will as it functions in our life today. I wonder if you would, what you would think about this, this idea, um, that it really wasn't the will, maybe, that changed in Augustine's thought so much as a new deepened understanding of two things, sin and grace. Mm. And of course that being related to the fall uh, and what that did to the structure of humanity before God and before one another, that that's really what brings about a a new crisis in a way in Augustine Mm. when he writes the Confessions and then moves later into the Pelagian controversies. Mm -hmm. What about that reading? Yeah, that's interesting. I would say that it's not an either-or, that certainly, yes, his understandings of sin and grace are changing. But it's interesting when we look at his terminology that he uses to describe the will, he actually starts to use different terms to name the will. In that earliest stage, he describes a will as a hinge, but then in the in later stages, when describing the impact of the fall, bringing in sin mm-hmm. and um, uh, changes in his understanding of the impact of sin on the will, he describes it as a chain. Mm. So in terms of the way he presents it himself, changes as a result, uh, changes in his understandings of sin and grace actually change how we can even understand what the will is. Another big term for Augustine is desire and love. You are what you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks a lot about loving and desiring. Yes. How is that related to the will? Yeah. Um, at one point, Augustine says that the will is a strong love. So I think that's one interesting thing about um, his contribution is how he relates will and love and desire so closely. I remember that statement um, that uh, he, he considers our love as a weight, a pondus, mm. he uses that Latin word, pondus, mm. um, something that pulls us or drags us like a weight mm-hmm. in one direction or another. And mm-hmm. that so we are dragged along by what we desire towards mm-hmm. some end, whether it's for our good or not. Yeah, I think that image really helps to capture, too, how um, our our will, like our loves, is not always something that is very easily controlled by mm. us. Yeah, yeah. Which brings up the whole question about what redemption is, uh, what salvation is, mm. uh, how grace works mm. in our life. And uh, Augustine spent 
uh, I think, the last 20 years of his life working with this problem, didn't he, in the Pelagian controversies. I'm not sure he ever completed that whole problematic. He kept writing about it, and controversies would arise. He would write again. And that's closely related to another theme that's very prominent in Augustine at this later period and is picked up again in the Reformation. And in your tradition, your Reformed tradition, that is the doctrine of predestination. And that's related also to the will. And often those terms are paired, predestination and free will, as though they were polar opposites. Say a little bit how you read Augustine on those very important biblical, but also problematic theological issues, predestination, free will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of Augustine's amazing contributions actually is, is to show how um, free will is not something that is undermined by predestination, which is actually a, a biblical concept. So I think Christians need to affirm some form of predestination. Yeah, it's in the Bible, right? If you're a biblical Christian, you've got to kind of deal with that, unless you want to take your scissors and cut out all those words, not just in Romans 9 to 11, but many other places. Ephesians, yeah. Right. So, um, and I think one of, one of the beautiful things that Augustine shows is how predestination can actually help us to be more free rather than less so. I mean, his eschatological vision of how the will works is that the Ultimately, our will will be unable to choose evil. Now, to some people, I think that sounds restrictive or frightening, that as, as if the will is negatively, it's constrained, and that seems uh, like it would constrict human freedom. But I think he has a really crucial insight that um, enabling the will to never waver in loving the good is actually an, an incredibly beautiful kind of freedom that yeah. God has for it's us. It's the greatest freedom, right? Uh, to be able to sin uh, is, is to be putting yourself in bondage mm-hmm. in a strange way. Mm. I think you're 100% right about that. You mentioned a while ago uh, Karl Barth, who was, uh, of course, uh, a great Reformed theologian in the early 20th century, who was also a great reader of Augustine. And you've written an essay about Barth and Augustine. Can you? What did you discover? Yeah. Bart has a very interesting uh, and ambivalent relationship to Augustine. On the one hand, he clearly admires his creativity, his technical expertise as a theologian, and says that he's one of the greatest theological minds the church has ever known. He's up there with Aquinas, Athanasius. So Bart has great respect for Augustine, but he's also a little suspicious of Augustine. He thinks that Augustine is a little bit too Catholic. Yeah, yeah. So Catholics would like that, of course. <laughs> they agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing about Augustine that he's a championed by both Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. Maybe an equal fervor. I don't know. Uh, but he's certainly. It's hard to think of Luther without Augustine. Mm-hmm. He was an Augustinian monk and read Augustine avidly and creatively. Calvin. I mean, there's more quotations from Augustine and Calvin than anybody else except the Bible. And yet you're right. There is this Augustinian tradition in Catholicism. You see it uh, in some ways very powerfully presented in Joseph Ratzinger. Pope Benedict XVI was an Augustinian scholar, wrote on Augustine. So uh, that makes Augustine in a way the, the father of us all. Can you say? <laughs> yeah. You're here at Beeson to speak 
on Finkenwalde Day. I introduced that briefly at the beginning of our conversation. It's a special day named after the community that Dietrich Bonhoeffer led during the Nazi period, an underground seminary where they would study the Bible and also live their life together in community. And so we take one day a year. We we don't have any classes that day. We eat lunch together. We pray together. We play games together. It's called Finkenwalde Day. And you're our special guest this year. And you have kindly agreed to give a lecture, a lecture I've never heard on this topic before, so it must be brand new, Augustine on Martyrdom, Death, and Asceticism. I'm so glad you chose that topic, partly because that fits with our theme this whole semester, the, the Noble Army of Martyrs, and you're relating it especially to Augustine. Now, this podcast will be posted after this year's Finkenwalde Day, so maybe without spoiling anything that you're going to say for our group here, you can tell us a little postscript or preview, however you want to look at it, of Augustine on martyrdom, death, and asceticism. I had so much fun preparing this talk, and it was prepared from scratch, so it <laughs> makes sense that the t- title seemed new to you. I think it's so interesting that whereas... In Augustine's day, it was very common to see martyrs as a special class um, of super super Christians, mm. heroes of the faith who were very removed from the experience of the everyday Christian. Mm. A, um, that Augustine gives us a, a quite different kind of emphasis in his description of, of the martyrs. He gives us a more humanized vision of who, who the martyrs were. They were humble. They had to be patient. They were weak. They mm-hmm. feared death. They mm-hmm. grieved. And along with that, he also gives an account of how martyrdom is a calling not only to these superheroes of the faith who literally underwent martyrdom, but also to every Christian person. Mm, yeah, yeah. And what about the asceticism piece? <laughs> Well, I actually get, a, there's a new title to the paper that leaves that out. <laughs> I, I did get to death, but I didn't get all the way to all asceticism. Right. Okay. Well, asceticism, what we mean by that, I think, living a certain way of life. It was, it was the way of the martyrs. Uh, they were exemplars of asceticism. But this is something that's very important to Augustine, isn't it? How to prepare yourself for the heavenly life here on earth. Mm-hmm. And the ascetic way isn't just for you know the great heroes, as you were mm-hmm. saying. It's something that the Lord has intended for all of his people mm-hmm. and right. in different degrees and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the modern church have to learn from St. Augustine? Oh, I think it's so interesting to think about parallels between Augustine's context and our own today, particularly here in the U.S., in Augustine's day, the Roman Empire was beginning to crumble, mm. and um, he had to deal with that changing political reality. And I think today, uh, the the U.S. is is not quite as powerful, perhaps, as it used to be. And um, you know, we think about the Pax Americana, mm-hmm. perhaps yielding to a Piece of China, where China is becoming a stronger and stronger world, world power. All of this creates a lot of societal unease. How do we deal with that? And I think it's very interesting to think about how Augustine responded to those changes in his own day and what we can learn from that. Yeah. And his view of kind of 
history, providence, what God was doing in the world with the mm-hmm. kingdoms that rise and fall, mm-hmm. had in some ways a shaping influence on the certainly the millennium that followed his death in 430 mm-hmm. and maybe even still continues to appeal to Christians who are seeking a place to stand in this kind of fragile world that, mm-hmm. that you describe. So mm-hmm. not only the confessions, but the city of God yes. has something to say to us as well, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. Mm-hmm. One of the issues, and you deal with this in dealing with the will, is the question of what is a human being. I sometimes think that's maybe the most pressing question of our time. Uh, There are lots of other things we've debated, of course, the Bible and the church and who God is and this kind of theology. But what is a human being? It touches all of our bioethical issues. It touches what we do with one another in society and how we live together or try to live together in a fractious world. Talk about Augusta just for a minute and his view of the human being made by God uh, intended for eternity. Mm. What would you say we can learn today from Augustine about his view of what a human being is? One interesting thing about Augustine's approach to that question is that he doesn't really um, approach it directly. It's more, uh, on the other hand, it's it's really all over his corpus, um, but it's it's approached from the side um, indirectly through other topics, and I think that's of material significance too, because he's not considering the human being as an autonomous, independent unit as a silo, but um, always in relation to God. And um, in the context, really, of often a biblical interpretation. And so that really shapes how he understands what it means to be human. Yeah. I have one more question for you. It's about the church. Uh, again, we were talking about how Augustine is championed by Catholics and Protestants alike. And, of course, there was a very famous statement by B.B. Warfield of Princeton fame, a great theologian in his own right, an earlier generation, who said the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's understanding of grace over his understanding of the church. Well, we could talk all day about what that means and what it meant to Warfield, but think about the church now. And I'm thinking Augustine's view of the church, but your view of the church You are uh, a minister, right, in the Reformed Church of America. You teach at a theological seminary. You are training men and women to serve in the life of the church. What is the church? I think in answering that question, it's very helpful to um, think of biblical metaphors for the church. And um, the one I would probably go to first is a church as the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, while... I would want to avoid seeing seeing the church as a kind of prolongation of the incarnation. I think it's also at the same time true that the, the church always derives its life from Christ, the head of the church. So the church is the body of Christ. My guest today on the Beeson podcast has been Dr. Han Luen Conser Comline. She holds the Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame, an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary, a B.A. from Wheaton College. Uh, she has studied in Tübingen, a number of places. She teaches now at Western Theological Seminary, which is a school affiliated with the Reformed Church of America. A wonderful scholar, a person of the church, and a delightful person to talk with. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Dr. George.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.